It's going to be from 2 Kings chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 12. That's 2 Kings chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 12. And it, <clears throat> and it came to pass, when the Lord was about to take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind, that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. Then Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. Now the sons of the prophets who were at Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? And he said, Yes, I know. Keep silent. Then Elijah said to him, Elisha, stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. Now the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho came to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? So he answered, Yes, I know. Keep silent. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on, and fifty men of the sons of the prophets went and stood facing them at a distance, while the two of them stood by the Jordan. Now Elijah took his mantle, rolled it up, and struck the water, and it was divided this way and that, so that the two of them crossed over dry ground. And so it was, when they had crossed over, that Elijah said to Elisha, Ask, what may I do for you, before I am taken away from you? Elisha said, Please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. So he said, uh, You have asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken from you, it shall be for you. But if not, it shall not be so. Then it happened, as they continued on and talked, that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried out, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and its horsemen. So he saw him no more, and he took hold of his own clothes and tore them into two pieces. I don't know if you're like me, but I love a good ending. Whether you're talking about a, a book or a movie, I love a good ending. And we've been conditioned to think that way. Uh, you think about the fairy tales that you grow up hearing or you grow up seeing in the movies. We're taught that the ideal situation is a good ending. Now, a good ending doesn't just apply to a movie or a fairy tale or a book. You can have a good ending to a meal. I consider this a meal. Not only that, you can have a good ending to a vacation. I think this is a good ending to a vacation because I love going to Disney World. I just can't afford to go to Disney World as much as I love going to Disney World. And you can have a good ending to a football game. This was a good ending to a football game. Now, I'm not, but this was a good ending to a football game. And some of you are thinking, well, you can have a good ending to a sermon, too. This is what a good ending to a sermon looks like. <laughs> we love good endings, don't we? We love endings. And when you talk about endings, you have to talk about Because a lot of story has a good ending. 
You may have noticed in the scripture reading, when you get down to about verse 11, we find out that Elijah is carried off into heaven by a whirlwind. Fantastic, unique, reckless. Elijah's end did not include death. Elijah's end involved a miraculous whirlwind. And this morning, his life is going to come to an end. But not without one final lesson that we can learn from this man of God. And I want you to notice from the outset of this chapter, from the outset of chapter 2 of 2 Kings, we're told that it's Elijah's end. If you look back at verse 1, the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven. And this fact is by everyone who appears in the story. Throughout the entire chapter, everyone is aware of Elijah's upcoming end. The prophets Elijah and Elisha that his end is near because they keep telling Elisha about it. You can see that in verse 3. Elisha, Elisha knows that nearing Elijah's end because he keeps silencing the prophets and telling them that he knows. Also in verses 3 and 5. Elijah knows his end is because after crossing the Jordan River, he turns to Elisha. says, what shall I do for you before I am taken from you? Elijah it's his end. Here's what fascinates me about this chapter. Elijah knows his life is coming to an end. And how Elijah spends his last day can teach us a lot about having a good ending. See, not people are privy to knowing when they're in. Elijah woke up that morning, and Elijah knows it's his last day, and Elijah makes intentional choices. That last day. I think that's speak to you and I because we don't know when our last day will be. We don't know when our time will come. We don't know when the Lord will return. But we can live every day as if it is our last day. And if we do so, we too will have a good ending like Elijah. And so, what I want to do this morning is show you three things from the text that caused Elijah to have a good ending. And the first want to have a good ending like Elijah, then remain active. One thing that caught my attention is the fact that Elijah knew his time was limited, but he didn't use that as an excuse to limit his contributions to the kingdom. His last day was spent actively going and doing for God. This last day of Elijah's life, he walked an estimated 35 miles, traveled to Bethel, from Bethel to Jericho, and then from Jericho to the Jordan River. What's interesting is that this Bethel to Jericho to the Jordan, it retraces the first movements of Israel that they made when they entered the promised land. 
There's something historical about what he's doing that day. It provides this unique opportunity for Elijah to reflect on all that God had done for Israel. Their first encampment was at Gilgal. When they crossed the Jordan River, their first place they spent the night was in Gilgal. And Joshua erected a monument Gilgal to commemorate that occasion. Then you have Bethel. Bethel is the first place that Abraham did an altar when he arrived in the Promised Land. And when he went to Egypt that brief period of time and returned to Canaan, the first place he went to was back to Bethel to call the name of the Lord. And you may also remember that Bethel, Jacob had that dream about a ladder extending to heaven. It's where he made a, a vow before the Lord. It's where he too constructed an altar to worship. Of course, you'll remember that Jericho is the location of the first conquest. Victory brought God a victory that undoubtedly because it didn't involve the Israelites being a weapon. Certainly a great deal of praise for God associated with that conquest of Jericho. Remember that the Jordan River is famous crossing by the Israelites. It's like the Red Sea, God parted the waters of the Jordan River so that they could cross on dry land. No, it's not as big of a body of water as the Red Sea, but the work God had the priests in the middle of the river holding the Ark of the Covenant and everybody passed by on dry land as long as the priests water. And you know what? After they all crossed, Joshua went and gathered stones, built a monument right in the middle of the river. Memorial God. Priests were standing. You see, all four locations that Elijah travels to that day, all four locations associated with the praise of God. And during this trip, I can't help but imagine that Elijah engaged in some spontaneous worship of God himself. How could he not go to Bethel and praise God like his forefathers. How could he not see the sight of Jericho and not praise God? How could he not go to the Jordan River, part it with his cloak, much like they parted it when they crossed over years earlier, place, and not praise God? On top of that, we find out that during this trip, he twice encountered the sons of the prophets. You can read about them in verse 3 and verse 5. This terminology is a reference to a community of prophets that resided in those specific locations. And during his last day, we have Elijah visiting these prophetic communities. Now, we don't know what he said them, but I don't believe it was a coincidence that immediately before his final departure, Elijah traveled to locations where there were other prophets. Maybe he wanted to provide some encouragement. Maybe he wanted to provide some last-minute guidance. 
Maybe he just wanted to say goodbye to those who were in the same profession as himself. But Elijah spent his last day visiting significant locations associated with God and visiting the other prophets. The prophets that he thought he was the last of at one point in time. Think about this. We don't know how old Elijah was at this point in his life. But we do know that every minute of his life, to even on his last day, his contributions, whether it be worshiping God, whether it be uh, encouraging others, whether it be others, his last day was spent in service to the kingdom of God. One commentator summarized Elijah's last day. He said, Elijah didn't sit around and do nothing. He didn't say to his successor, I'm going to leave you and thus dwell on the negative. Instead, he kept busy until the very moment the Lord called him. And the lesson of Elijah is that if we want to have a good ending like him, then we should never stop contributing to the work of the kingdom. You know that. I'm not preaching some whole to you right now. But here's the thing. I'm afraid that more often we care to admit. We retire from service to the kingdom. When was the last time you volunteered for a ministry of the Lord's church? When was the last time you willingly taught a Bible class? When was the last time you went on a mission trip or an organizer? When was the last time you participated in a service project? When was the last time you led in some aspect of our worship service? time you hosted an activity for the church? When was the last? Well, y'all haven't heard half my lesson, apparently. Let's start over. <laughs> I apologize for that. And now I've lost mine. When was the last time you heard me? I think the devil works in microphones because I have a green light. When was the last time, honestly, that you contributed to the kingdom of God? I'm reminded of an individual, not from this congregation, but an individual that I approached one time as I was recruiting teachers for children's Bible classes. And when I asked her if she would uh, be a teacher for the upcoming quarter, she told me, she said, 
I did that for 20 years. It's time for somebody else to do it. Now, I understand the importance of the next generation stepping up. And I understand the need for workers to get rest. But this individual wasn't saying, I've been doing this every Sunday for the past five years. I really could use a break. And this individual wasn't saying that, that, uh, that I, 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 would, I would like to give somebody else the op- an opportunity to do this. This individual was saying, I put in my time. It's time for me to retire. What do you think Jesus thinks about that mindset in the kingdom? Truth is, you don't have to wonder because he addressed it. In Revelation chapter 3, in the first three verses, he wrote a letter to the church in Sardis. He said, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will choose like, excuse me, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. See, after acknowledging this congregation's reputation, Jesus said they were dead. And then he instructed them to repent, but what is he calling on them to repent of? You might notice that nowhere in this letter, nowhere in his writing to the church of Sardis, does Jesus condemn them for rampant immorality. Nowhere in his letter to the church in Sardis does he criticize them for accepting false teaching. Those aren't the problems in Sardis. I bet you could have gone to Sardis, gone into that congregation, and you would have heard good gospel preaching, and you would have met some of the most moral and decent people you ever knew, because that wasn't the problem in Sardis. But just as they weren't condemned for those things, they weren't commended for anything either. At no point in that letter to the church in Sardis does Jesus commend them for what they're doing. The church in Sardis is one of only two churches in the book of Revelation to whom Jesus wrote nothing good. To whom Jesus had nothing good to say as far as the congregation is concerned. Instead, what you find Jesus saying is, I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. So I think Jesus is calling on the church in Sardis to repent of worshiping their reputation. To repent of settling for former success. To repent of falling asleep on the job. In other words, Jesus indicates that they had become inactive and ineffective as a congregation. And what Jesus seems to be pointing out is that their past reputation is not as important as current performance. And that's because Jesus condemns spiritual inactivity just as much as he condemns spiritual compromise. So here's the point. You may not be able to do today what you were able to do 10 years ago. You may not be able to continue the ministries and the activities that you've done in your life up to this point. But you can still do something for the kingdom. 
You may have to choose a new ministry to be a part of. You may have to refocus your efforts. But don't stop serving. Don't stop working. Don't stop contributing to the kingdom. Because the one talent servant who buried his resource, he was called wicked, lazy, and worthless. And then he was sent away to be punished. Elijah was active to the last minute. If you want to have a good ending like Elijah, then you too must remain active for God's kingdom. And as we look at Elijah's last day, I also come to this conclusion. If you want to have a good ending like Elijah, then make long-term investments. Look at the first verse again of 2 Kings chapter 2. Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Here's what you're going to find out. Elijah spent his entire last day with Elisha by his side. They had developed this mentor-mentee relationship. It started all the way back in 1 Kings chapter 19 when God instructed Elijah to anoint Elisha to be the prophet in his place. And one thing you'll notice on this last day is that at every stop they came to, Elijah encouraged Elisha to stay behind. Verse 2, verse 4, verse 6. Every time they stopped, Elijah instructed Elisha to stay put. It sounds like Elijah wants to be left alone, that he doesn't want Elisha to go with him, that he's, that he's trying to even just get rid of Elisha. But actually, these stay here instructions that you see throughout this chapter, they're part of Elisha's training. Elijah was ultimately testing Elisha's devotion that day. Because if you notice, Elisha never obeys Elijah. And Elijah never rebukes Elisha for disobeying him. You have to remember that when Elijah, back in 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 20, when Elijah threw his mantle on Elisha and made him his successor, Elisha's response was, I will follow you. And he was keeping that promise. And so when they made it to their final destination, Elijah turns to Elisha in verse 9 of 2 Kings chapter 2 and says, Ask, what shall I do for you before I am taken from you? And Elijah offers here to do one last thing for Elisha. One last thing. And Elisha's request is this, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. Elisha's request alludes to the birthright principle in Mosaic law. According to Deuteronomy chapter 21 and verse 17, the firstborn son is supposed to receive a double portion of his father's estate. Elisha is the spiritual son of Elijah because God chose him to become Elijah's successor. 
So when Elisha asks for a double portion of Elijah's spirit, he was doing two things. He was one, he was acknowledging that he was ready and willing to assume Elijah's role as the prophetic successor. And two, he was asking to inherit those qualities that made Elijah successful as God's representative. Qualities such as courage, faithfulness, obedience. So Elijah spends his last day on earth with Elisha. Elijah spends his last day on earth fulfilling this mentor role. Elijah spends spends his last day on earth equipping Elisha to carry on the work of the kingdom. Elijah decided that the best use of his time in its waning moments was to invest in the next generation. And Elijah's equipping of Elisha is a reminder to you and I that one of the greatest things you can do in your latter years is mentor a younger Christian. A mentor is one who functions in an advisory role to another by educating and equipping them based on the mentor's previous experience or expertise. In other words, a mentor is a mature follower who helps a less mature follower mature. And this type of relationship is prevalent throughout the Bible. Not only do you have Elijah and Elisha, but you can go back and you've got Moses and Joshua. You can think about Eli and Samuel. You can think about Paul and Timothy. You can even think about Jesus and the apostles. At some point in life, all of us need someone who can help us mature in the faith, someone who can equip us with wisdom and skills that we previously lacked, and someone who can be held up as an example to follow. In fact, the Bible indicates that mature Christians are responsible for mentoring, that it's an assignment they've been given by God. Look at Titus chapter 2 and the first six verses. Paul provides mentoring instructions for Timothy to pass on to others. I said Timothy, I mean Titus. So Titus chapter 2 verses 1 through 6. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. See, Paul's instructions here boil down to two things. He's telling Titus to teach the older women to train the younger women. That's quite evident down there in verses 3 through 5. He's also instructing that older men should model self-control for the younger men. Because back in verse 2, older men, among other things, are to be self-controlled. And then you get down to verse 6. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Where are they going to learn it? They're going to learn it 
from the older men who are modeling it. You see, when you look at these six verses, they're all about mentoring. In these six verses, Paul is telling Titus, here's what the mature men and mature women of faith should do. And it has its eyes on how they affect the younger men and women of faith. See, the Bible creates an expectation of us investing in the next generation by mentoring them. That's exactly what Elijah spends the entirety of his last day doing with Elisha. And so the question you have to consider for yourself is, have you made that investment? Not just in your own children, though that's where you do need to start, but also in any young person, anyone younger than you. Because it doesn't mean you have, to, you have to choose someone who's in the youth group. You can mentor someone who's still 40 years old or older. Because even though I put up a good facade, there's still a lot of things I could work on. <laughs> like how to use a microphone. If you want to have a good ending like Elijah... And make those long-term investments. And one last observation from this chapter. If you want to have a good ending like Elijah, it's real simple. Just follow the directions. See, this is the last day of Elijah's life on earth, and the entire day is centered around him going where God tells him to go. In verse 2, Elijah told Elisha, the Lord has sent me to Bethel. And off he went to Bethel. In verse 4, Elijah tells Elisha, the Lord has sent me to Jericho. And off he goes to Jericho. In verse 6, Elijah tells Elisha, the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And off he went to the Jordan. Elijah spent the last moments of his earthly existence following God's orders every step of the way. And this shouldn't be a surprise to us because his epitaph could read the man who followed God's directions. You can go back to 1 Kings chapter 17 when he showed up in King Ahab's court. He was following God's directions, particularly God's directions found in Mosaic law about returning to him and what consequences would happen when the Israelites began worshiping the gods of those who inhabited the land. You can look in verse 2, when Elijah confronted Ahab, verse 2 of 1 Kings chapter 17, and said the word of the Lord came to him, instructing him to go hide by the brook Cherith, where he would be fed by ravens. And in verse 5 of 1 Kings chapter 17, guess what Elijah does? He went and did according to the word of the Lord. When that brook dried up, 1 Kings chapter 17 and verse 8 says that the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Again, and this time it instructed him to go to Zarephath, where he would be cared for by a widow. And in verse 10 of 1 Kings 17, we're told that he arose and went to Zarephath. After three years of drought, we're told in 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 1 that the word of the Lord came to Elijah, instructing him to appear before Ahab again. So do you know what Elijah did? 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 2 tells us that he went to show himself to Ahab. 
And when Elijah was hiding from Jezebel in that cave, we're told in 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 9 that the word of the Lord came to him. And in verses 15 through 16, that word of the Lord instructed him to go anoint Hazael, king of Syria, Jehu, king of Israel, and Elisha to be his successor. And do you know what Elijah did? He departed from there and found Elisha. Verse 19. Here's the point. Every step of Elijah's life, he spent following the word of the Lord. If I could give you one piece of advice today to take away, that's it. Just follow the directions. The directions from God. Because if you'll follow God's directions, you can't go wrong. It's that simple. It becomes complicated. When we start trying to pick and choose which directions are worth following. When we start trying to rationalize which directions we want and which we don't. And it's important to acknowledge that Elijah's commitment to following the directions contributed to his good ending. Because your ultimate ending is based on your willingness to follow. Listen to these words from Jesus, Matthew chapter 10 and verse 38. Whoever does not take this, his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. You cannot be worthy of Jesus unless you follow him. John chapter 12 and verse 26, Jesus said, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. You cannot be where Jesus is unless you follow him. That's why following matters so much. See, ultimately, following the directions is a demonstration of obedience, which in turn communicates love. When you follow someone, you're declaring your willingness to obey them. And when you obey someone, you're communicating your affection for them. One reason that I know Micah loves me is because she obeys me. It may be displayed when she eats the food that I've told her to eat or when she does the chore that I told her to do or when she helps in some way that I've asked her to help. Her obedience to my instruction provides evidence that she loves me because in fulfilling my request, she shows that she doesn't want to anger me, she doesn't want to disrespect me, and she doesn't want to disappoint me. Think about this. Jesus said in John 14 and verse 15, If you love me, you do what? You keep my commandments. It's a following instruction. And on his last day on earth, Elijah spent the whole day showing God how much he loved him by following his directions. If you want to have a good ending, do the same. Follow his directions. You know, there's only two people we know of that never officially died. The first was Enoch, who according to Genesis chapter 5 and verse 24, walked with God and was not, for God took him. And the second is, of course, Elijah, 
Elijah, who went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Only two people in all of history were deemed worthy of a divine escort into heaven without dying. But there's a day coming when many more will be deemed worthy of the same. Because the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 and 17, that God, the Lord himself, will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. So a day is coming when God is going to do for all who are still alive what he did for Elijah. And that will be a good ending. The question we all have to ask ourselves today is whether or not we're worthy of that ending. And you can be worthy of it. But you're only worthy of it because of what Christ has done for you. And what Christ has done for you can only be applied to you if you will confess your faith that he is the risen Son of God, if you will repent of your sins, and if you will be immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins. If right now you examine your life and you don't think you're worthy, then won't you respond to this invitation while together we stand and sing.
Our closing hymn this morning will be hymn 743. Thank those who have come this morning, those who are downstairs and on the line, and we encourage you to come back tonight at 6 o'clock as we hear another lesson from God's Word. 743, we'll sing the first, second, fourth stanza, and we'll be dismissed. Oh, land of rest for thee, I Simon will
we have joy, we have sorrow, we have loss, we have family problems, we have financial problems. Lord, we all share the experiences of this life. Because of that, Lord, we come as a family asking for help. Please consider us, Lord. Stretch your hand upon us. Touch those that are grieving. Touch those that are sick. Touch those with the ailments of age. Touch the young, Lord, that have to deal with the temptations of this current life. Give them all strength, Lord. Lord, give us the energy and the will to study your word daily. There is a lot of comfort in that. There's a lot of help in there. It also contains wisdom that's far beyond ours that we can use, but we have to go get it. Be with each of us, Lord, as we leave today and Help us to get home safe. Help us not to forget the problems and the sorrows and even the happy times of our brothers and sisters. That we may cry with those who cry and that we may laugh with those who laugh. This is our prayer in Christ Jesus. And amen.